I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Julie Gould and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. This is the second part of our series on careers in physics where we're focusing on transitions. In this episode I'm exploring geographical transitions and I'm particularly focusing on the story of an astrophysicist whose academic career so far has straddled the UK, US, Canada and Japan twice. So how do the countries, research cultures and institutions compare? And how do you prepare for an international career move, particularly to countries where you don't speak the language, and turn that to your advantage? So Elizabeth Tasker is our story for today. She's an astrophysicist and science communicator at the Japan Exploration Agency, JAXA, at the Institute of Space and Astronautical Sciences. Her interest in star formation in galaxy disks started during her PhD, which was both at the University of Oxford in the UK and the University of Columbia in the US and then followed her through two postdocs, one at the University of Florida and a second at the Origins Institute, based at McMaster University in Canada. After the two postdocs, she decided to take the opportunity to work in Japan. That wasn't a decision based on a whim. She'd actually previously spent four months on a fellowship out there and had fallen in love with the country. So I wanted to know, are the working environments very different when comparing the different physics departments that she worked in? Let's start with Florida. Obviously, in Oxford and indeed Columbia, alligators are not much of a problem. Whereas in Florida, you know, any drainage ditch was a concern. It could honestly contain a man-eating reptile. So that was a whole new uh, ballpark to contend with. Did you have any encounters with a man-eating reptile whilst you were there? They were on campus. They really are incredibly common. It's not that Florida just has alligators. I mean, Florida has alligators everywhere. (laughs) But what about when you compare these to Japan? Elizabeth moved to Tokyo in June 2009 for a short-term, four-month fellowship. The US, the UK and Canada, they're not the same country and they definitely have differences. But we are, we share a history and we're cut from the same cloth. So there's obviously a common language that is widely spoken and it's generally a difference of a handful of words as opposed to any, any major difference between the languages. Whereas Japan, obviously the language is very different, the culture was very different. And I actually felt that I travelled somewhere and really was seeing something different. And I loved that. I loved going to the temples and shrines 
And these were sort of side by side with incredibly modern architecture, like soaring skyscrapers and huge TV screens and uh, really the, the two extremes of very traditional and very modern. And what about the working environment? Did you notice any any p- particular differences that, that you found either challenging or interesting? On the whole, universities operate pretty similarly, I found, ac- across the world. Um, you know, they have the same range of uh, graduate students and postdocs and, and faculty and people meet together and give talks. And we're all publishing in the same journals because astrophysics is a sufficiently small field that you do need to you do need to all publish in the same journals and share your work so despite uh, the level of English being sometimes a little mixed everyone was still writing in English uh, because they had to they had to publish in English for their work to be seen worldwide she enjoyed her time so much that she wanted to come back and I said to the person who was helping supervise me can I do this And he said, you can. He said, the problem is that most foreigners in academia in Japan are postdocs. Because we typically teach in Japanese, we don't hire many faculty members. And at this stage, I was about to enter my second full postdoc and ideally would be applying for faculty jobs after this. So I was left with a choice, I thought. Do I do a third postdoc by choice as opposed to by necessity and try and go back to Japan? Or do I decide that going back to Japan permanently is not really an option and you know look for a career in North America or Europe? But just as I was coming up to that decision, I was entering, you know, the near the end of my second year at my master university where the job market was starting to loom on the horizon. I actually was contacted by Hokkaido University, which is a university on the northern island of Hokkaido in Japan in a city called Sapporo. Most people know it from the beer. And they emailed me and said, actually, we are looking to hire a native English speaker. We're starting to introduce more English courses in science and we want someone to teach in that language. Would you be interested? We've asked around and your name has come up as someone who might be prepared to drop everything and move to the other side of the world. And I said, yes, you've come to the right place. I would definitely prepare to do that. So I applied for that position and I got it. So actually that summer in 2011, I moved to Hokkaido and began an assistant professorship at Hokkaido University there. This transition came with many challenges, one of which was obviously the language barrier. It was one of those things. I was at Hokkaido for five years and things got a lot better over that five year period, Uh, by which I don't mean that I wasn't welcome or that I didn't enjoy myself. But in terms of the support that was easily available, that increased a lot over the five years. I was not the only foreign faculty by a long way, but I was part of the first generation really to come to Japan as foreign faculty. And therefore, it was generally up to the people in your group to support you which was obviously ultimately successful, (laughs) but certainly had its problems. Our head of group was a very kind person. He was very supportive of me, but he was not fluent in English. And so we had some problems. Like when I taught my class, no one gave me a syllabus, which I personally thought was important. And I said, don't you mind what I teach the students? I got a kind of vague, oh, it's first year physics. I'm like, but, but could we be more explicit about what you want me to cover? And then I would ask, 
okay, so what is the level of the students? You know, what have they covered before? What have they covered since? And no one was really up to explaining that to me. So in the end, there was only one way to find out, and I apologised deeply to my first class. And that was on my first or second lecture. I put up maths questions and I waited for them all to fail because I needed to know at what point I needed to start teaching the mathematics and at what point they already had it down. And I explained this to them and they took it in very good humour. But there wasn't that, no one was able to sit down to me and say, look, you know, by this stage, we expect students to cover the following things. This is what we expect in a first year physics course. It was very much for, oh, here's a class, you work it out. Did the students speak English at a level well enough for you to teach them? They did. They didn't always believe they did. Uh, Generally speaking, I found the issue with the students was one of confidence. And on the whole, their reading and writing was greatly better than their spoken English. So as a result, I designed my lectures with PowerPoint presentations, which many people say they hate. And I confess as a student, I didn't really like these. But what I found with teaching in Japan is that it was very important to be able to follow the class through reading the slides and not rely on understanding at speed what the lecturer was saying. So I used a lot of diagrams, a lot of pictures, movies where I could, and I made sure all the key points were on the slides. And it's not true that nobody failed my course. It is true, because I went and talked to students who weren't doing so well, that nobody failed because of the level of English. They failed because they were lazy and not doing the homework. Well, that happens everywhere, I think. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) One of the things that I hear a lot from academics is that having a support network of peers, uh, people in your field, uh, is incredibly important this becomes tricky to form when you move to a new place where you don't speak the language, where you don't know the the working culture as well. So how did you put together a network for yourself when you moved to Japan? Nowadays, the internet makes the world a much smaller place. So for example, uh, I'm very keen on Twitter. (laughs) I like it a lot. And I use it in lots of different ways. I would say one of its strengths is following Uh, up-to-date news. So I see a lot of news stories flash by and if something really big's happening, like for example when uh, Rosetta dropped its fillet lander on Comet 67P, Twitter was fantastic for up-to-date news from lots of different sources and those sort of live events are very powerful. But the other way I use Twitter is that it's a little bit like sitting in the office with people from around the world. You know, the tweets I really appreciate are Ones from people who I may have met in the past or maybe I only know through Twitter tweeting about a problem they've got in their research or, you know, just day to day problems with applying for grants. And you can also reach out in the same way and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got this problem with my code. Anyone have any ideas? And the Twitter science community is very good at responding to that and making you feel that you're part of a very large international community. Well, as well as the language and setting setting yourself up with things like phones and bank accounts, were there... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
any points where you thought that things were becoming a little bit too challenging, a little bit too difficult for you in Japan? I, I could probably say the worst thing that happened to me, um, and that was the closest I came to walking out. And that was actually, uh, I'd received uh, a very big grant from MEXT, our educational government, that was supporting young faculty members. It was an incredible award, and I was really proud to have it. But the application, although I completed the application in English, but the details of how the award worked and functioned were given to me in Japanese. And at the time, that wasn't being handled by our new Office of International Support. For whatever reason, the full details of the award were not clearly explained to me in English. And the small print that I missed was that as soon as I tenured, that is, I moved from assistant professor to associate professor, the award would end regardless of whether I'd got to the five-year period. So it was whichever came first, either five years or tenure. And I didn't realize that. I thought it was for five years. And I hired two postdocs with the promise that I had three years funding for them. And after they accepted, it turned out I only had 18 months before my tenure review. And I was really very, very upset by this because it's, you know, I'd signed on to work in Japan knowing there would be some problems. So when random things happened to me, like... Uh, you know, I didn't really know what the math level of my class was and things like that. It is kind of what I signed on for. So I was like, yes, Elizabeth, this is annoying, but let's face it, you asked for it. When it affects other people, especially their careers, it, it was it was really hard to cope with. I, I was very, very, very upset and quite angry. Um, and I felt that people hadn't really understood why I was so upset, which is maybe not true. It may be that people were very embarrassed and therefore they didn't really express themselves terribly well. And in the end, it, it all worked out okay. I explained to the two postdocs who I'd made offers to that this had happened. Uh, they were actually very understanding. They both still came and they both went on to positions afterwards, uh, very good positions. So that was very fortunate. But it was the closest I came to saying, this is not okay, and I'm going to leave. Wow. that must I can, I can only imagine how frustrating that must have been at the time. So what happened in the aftermath? Did the students stay on, or did, did the system change to support you in the future? So the fallout for that was I contacted the International Support Office, and I basically said to them, this wouldn't have happened if you'd been handling this grant because you would have checked the details. And they said, you're right, currently grants, grant handling is not in our, I guess, jurisdiction. It's not what we're supposed to be doing, but we should be doing it. This is a classic example of why we should be doing it. And they liaised on my behalf. And I said to them, you know, the only way we can go forward is if you take over my grant management. And they arranged that. They, they really did their best for me and they went to the people who are currently handling the grants and saying we know this was an honest mistake but actually we could have avoided it let us take over from now onwards and they did which is why I had the confidence going forward that this mistake would not be repeated. What did you do after the students left so they, they stayed for 18 months and you had your tenure review so what, what happened there? Right, so at that stage I'd calmed down a bit because it had been 18 months and everything had been going very smoothly. And I had my tenure review and I passed and I became associate professor at Hokkaido. And 
Shortly after that, I left for JAXA, but I didn't leave for negative reasons. I left for positive ones. I was happy at Hokkaido, but I'd started to do more and more science communication writing. So I had my research and my research program was good. And I, I really liked my students. They were doing really well. Um, but I, I love writing. I, I really feel very passionate about it. I really enjoy doing it. And for me, taking a topic that is very hard or maybe has a, a rather incomprehensible research paper attached to it and being able to explain it so that you don't need you know, six science degrees to understand it is immensely satisfying. I really enjoy the work. And Hokkaido had supported me in this. I had written for their alumni magazine a few feature pieces. And then I said to them, look, I'm enjoying this, but it's only coming out once a year. That's not enough. Can I set up a blog? where we walk around different departments and I do interviews with faculty and they tell me what they're doing. And they were very open to this and they said, absolutely, you go ahead. And it was great because I got to go into different departments. I mean, like most universities really across the world, departments operate really as independent islands. So you get a bit trapped in your departments and you don't really get to see what other people are doing. But now I had this bona fide excuse for contacting people and saying, yes, I know I'm in the physics department and I'm an astrophysicist, but I heard you talk about bears. Can you tell me about bears? And I would go and interview these people. But as time went on, uh, Hokkaido had plans to expand the courses it was teaching in English. And in theory, I was very supportive of this idea, but in practice, slightly anxious about my teaching load. And I was worried that I would have to teach a lot more. And the time I was using for scientific communication would be reduced because it wasn't an official part of my job. So I was just starting to look for other places where I might be able to make science communication actually part of my job. And around that time, the Japanese Space Agency advertised for an associate professor position in their departments. And it was a positive discrimination position. They would like either a woman or a foreigner. And I was like, well, I tick all those boxes. <laughs> so I wrote to them and I said, my research is theoretical modeling. It's not a terribly good fit for any of the JAXA missions, but I'm really interested in science communication. Would you consider my application? And they wrote back and said, yes, we would consider it. Write to us and you know, make your case. And they called me down for interview and I talked to them about length, uh, about some of the plans for outreach and research. And then in October 2016, I, I started my job as associate professor at JAXA. And since then, have you been able to do the amount of science communication that you are keen on? Very much so. If you have read anything about our asteroid explorer, Hayabusa 2, in the news, somewhat perhaps indirectly, you are going through me because I do a lot of the translations for the press release, the news articles. I am Hayabusa2ejaxa on Twitter. Uh, and I've also written a lot of articles directly with our mission manager, uh, Yoshikawa-san, on the mission for the media and for uh, nature astronomy and various other outlets. It's been absolutely fantastic to be part of such a team. So for anyone considering a transition to a vastly different culture with a language difference, here's Elizabeth's advice. Roll with the punches a little bit. I mean, sometimes, you know, there are occasionally things happen that are really very infuriating, like the problems I had with the funding of the postdocs. But 
there's going to be a lot of miscommunications. You're not going to be able to communicate perfectly with everyone unless you are fluent in Japanese already. And then even if you are, sometimes the cultural differences mean there's still some misunderstandings because you're just picturing slightly different scenarios. And I think you've got to be prepared to shrug your shoulders a bit and just say, you know, this is what I signed up for. And okay, my students don't have textbooks and I was assuming they would, but we will manage until they arrive and just explain and people will understand and try and not panic, I think. <laughs> Thank you, Elizabeth Tasker. Now, in our next episode, as part of this Careers in Physics series, we're exploring another type of transition from physics to data science. It's a topic I've been keen to explore, given that physicists are often coveted by industry for their skills in data science. But now there are so many more people graduating from data science-based undergraduate degrees. So is there still a place for physicists in this industry? I speak to Kim Nielsen and Deepak Matani from Pivigo about their science to data science training course and to Lewis Armitage, who's made the move from theoretical particle physicist at CERN to data analyst in industry. Here's a sneak preview. If you've shown that you've actually been able to take data and produce results from your data and then interpret that data, and the key thing is interpret, then that would really be the thing that puts you above because physicists have very good um, critical thinking skills. But then being able to justify that for a data science position, it really depends on the position. It depends if the data science position is actually a half analyst position. If that's the case, then the critical thinking will come in immensely. Now, don't forget, you can always find out more about what Nature Careers team is up to on Facebook and on Twitter. And there's, of course, the website, www.nature.com forward slash careers. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.